We're going through the letter to the Romans, the Sunday nights, in chapter 6, and I want us to consider together verse 19. I put this in human terms, because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. Well, we're all humbled as we consider this extraordinary figure of the Apostle Paul, his personality, as it's uh, described for us very fully in the latter half of the um, Acts of the Apostles, and by his self-disclosure in um, his many letters. He was obviously a man with a very high IQ, a virtual genius, but what he had done with his genius was to offer all his capacities and his attainments, his strength of mind and body, to God, to, to be used in the service of God. And after the Damascus Road experience, as he's really sharing with us in our text, his own biography, what happened to him, he ceased being a servant of cruelty and, and persecution, be, behaving as if he were um, a member of ISIS. And he became a servant of righteousness, leading to holiness. He gave his body and his mind, and his strength to the Lord Jesus for the rest of his days. But besides his own natural um, ability and intelligence and creativity, Paul was additionally assisted and gifted by the Holy Spirit so that he could write letters whose composition was inspired and directed to the very jots and tittles by Almighty God. And the result was that when we are reading these words that I've read to you now, that they are exactly what God wanted him to write. And they are exactly what he wants you to hear this evening. His very thoughts were enslaved to Jesus Christ. He could have prayed uh, the famous dedication, consecration hymn of Francis Ridley Havigal Havigal when um, she says, Take my intellect and use every power as thou wilt choose. And words to that effect had been prayed by the Apostle Paul. And we are seeing in our text a wonderful example of how this was worked out by him in his ministry, in his letter writing and his, his speaking to the church in Rome and to the other churches. So I want to look at the opening words of, of this text. First of all, how Paul adapted himself and his gifts to his neighbors. We have this little insight in the opening phrase of verse 19. It's so easy to overlook it. Um, he's telling us how he wrote and how he spoke to people. And what he says is fascinating to me. Um, You consider his posture here. Um, He doesn't hint, me the leader, you the led. Me the apostle, and you the church members, and so you listen to me. He had such authority, didn't he? Called to be an apostle. Given that gift, that stature. 
commissioned by God. And then he was a man who had tremendous experiences of God. He'd met and seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And then there was a time he'd been caught up to the third heaven and he'd seen sights and heard words. It wasn't lawful for him to repeat. What a privilege to have such a man as your preacher. And to think that um, he should even take care to write a letter to you. And that he might even mention your name amongst the long list of other names that you find in the last chapter of the letter. But if you said under your breath or, or to uh, your closest friend, of course he's so holy and brilliant, but I can't understand a lot of the things he says, he would be broken hearted because he failed to make clear to you the most wonderful message that you could possibly hear. Here's a message that could save you. Here was a message that could replace your weakness with strength and your ignorance with knowledge and your despair with hope and your hard-heartedness with love. He could make you a, a child of God, an heir of God. And Paul had failed to make this clear to you. And he would be so sad if he had heard, you know, she doesn't understand what you're talking about. So here's Paul, and he's well aware of the background of the congregation in Rome, though he's never been to Rome yet, but he seems to know the congregation like the back of his hand. He knew that there were illiterates in the congregation, and elderly, and housewives, gladiators, Children, beggars, slaves. He knew he wasn't writing this letter to the philosophers of Rome. Uh, the recipients of this letter weren't members of the university, the philosophy department, the theological department at, at Rome at all. And the challenge for Paul was uh, that he, he took what he had been given by God and, and he gave it without qualification. He gave it with help from the Holy Spirit in the writing and then in the declaration of it to the people so that the listeners would be able to grasp the gospel. He, he paid them this compliment. He didn't look down at them at all. Well, let's read what I'm talking about, these words that give Another insight into the character of this wonderful Christian man. Let me tell you why I find these opening words in this 19th verse so fascinating. He says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he, he obviously didn't stop using the right God words like justification and regeneration and sanctification and adoption and mortification and imputation. He used those words, didn't he? That's why we use them. If you have a fascinating new hobby now, motorbikes, and uh, you go out with men on their motorbikes and uh, you talk together and uh, 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 
truck to a lay-by and you look at one another's motorbikes, then uh, you quickly use the vocabulary that those men use. You, you, you don't want to talk about this thingy here. If you, if you join the University Mountaineering Club and you, you go to Kader or you go up to Snowdonia and you do some uh, rock climbing with them, there's the equipment and, and it's got names and you quickly learn the names. You, you don't want to be a baby when those people are around. We are to be familiar with the God-given words. God has taken such pains to uh, give us the scriptures and he uses terms that are right for us to understand and grasp and use ourselves. They are the stuff of praise. They're in our hymns. They are the material of believing meditation. Christ has given these words to us and he's given them directly himself all through his apostles. Now, Paul knew through his conversations with people that came to him from Rome in the great dynamism and movement of the, the Mediterranean basin. He knew about the church in Rome. And he knew that when they described the congregation to him, he knew that they weren't all as sharp and as wise and discerning as others were. Some were brand new Christians. And so um, when he has to describe for them this immense problem of the bondage of the will, that is the problem for all men and women. They, it's, our wills are, are, have a bias they're, they're bound to defiance and disobedience and ignorance, aren't they? You've seen, you've had children and you've had to tell your children again and again, what do you say? Thank you. What did you say? Please. And you've had to teach them not to grumble and stamp their feet and ask for more and be contented because their wills are bound to sin. That's the problem of our world today. And whatever political party is given power, the problem of the British Isles is the problem of the hearts of the British. So instead of saying to the people, um, and use the phrase, the bondage of the will, he, he tells them, you are slaves to sin. All unbelievers, slaves to sin. That when they uh, are angry or bitter or retaliate, then they are doing what their sinful desires and lusts are dictating to them to do. They're not free men at all. They may be boast that they're not like us who have to go to church on Sundays and keep the law of God. And they're free. They're not free at all. When God saves a person, he saves that person from the dominion, the lordship of sin over him. He is no longer then a servant of his master, sin. They have a new master. That new master is righteousness. Their new master is holiness. Their new master is God. 
So Paul takes this example of the slave from their own experience, but he does so conscious that he is speaking in human terms. Because we Christians are not exactly slaves in the same way as the poor slaves of the Roman Empire. In their hundreds of thousands, they said there were a million slaves in Rome. Men and women and children bought and sold in the slave markets of Rome every day. To be a servant of Jesus Christ is really to be free at last. To experience real freedom and true liberty. But the picture that Paul uses here of being a slave to Christ is vivid. And I hope for you it will be unforgettable and helpful because it describes for us the comprehensive nature of our Christian lives. The the slave didn't just work Sunday mornings from half past ten till half past twelve. Because he was a slave every day. We're not just uh, slaves of Jesus Christ Sunday morning and, and Sunday night. We're his not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. We are his servants 24-7. So Paul says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. In other words, some of them were slow. Some of them were dull. And they needed human terms, as we all do. We remember illustrations. But more than that, we remember teaching that grabs our affections. Teaching with pathos in it. Teaching that doesn't just illuminate our minds, but moves our affections. And that's why you could never be satisfied if you came here on a Sunday night and I read to you, eight chapters of Romans and pronounced the benediction and all we had was the word of God. You wouldn't be satisfied with that because uh, you want that word of God to get under your skin and into your mind and into your heart and you want it uh, practically to enforce then um, how you're to live tomorrow in work and tomorrow at school or at the university. You want me to teach and and apply and really lay the word of God on you. I need to put this truth in human terms to appreciate your humanity and mine. The apostle once wrote to another church and he, he said to them, he'd love to give them meat. He'd love to say, I've got steak here today. Oh, this is mouth-wateringly. It's juicy and... Let me give you a a piece of tender steak tonight. I couldn't do that. Because you were... You are newborn babes. And you can't give a newborn babe a a piece of the tenderest steak. You have to give them a bottle and a teat. And give them milk. And so Paul said, so I'm, I'm, I'm giving you milk then. Well, now here's this man, and he's very different from the man that we meet in Acts 7 at the beginning of our introduction to him, breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the church, guarding the coats of the men so that they could be free then to pick up a jagged rock and hurl it from six feet away to Stephen. 
to break his cheekbones and his jaw and crack his skull and break his ribs and thud the stones in and keep them thudding in until he no longer winced and twitched because he was dead. I voted for them to be killed, Paul sadly acknowledged. But now here's a a change. Here's the Roman congregation. There's a, a Christian healed leper, but still has the marks of leprosy, what it's done, the devastation of the disease on him. And here's uh, 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 an old lady and there's a glaucoma and she's led to the place and there are uh, new Christians there and here are boys and girls and he wants all of them to understand the love of God in Jesus Christ and what that love has done in giving his life for us and coming by his spirit into us and giving us his word to tell us how we are to live. So Paul became like an illiterate himself that he could save the illiterates. He became like a beggar that he might save the beggar. He became poor that he might save the poor. He's like his master. His master didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give himself to the people day by day. And this is the Jesus who sat on the throne of the universe alongside his father, and they said, let there be light, and there was light, and they made every living thing, and they also made the stars, and they did that together. He was worshipped and adored by an innumerable company of angels, and he was as sinless and as perfect as they were. And he entered the womb of Mary, A teenage Jewish girl, and he was born in a stable. The creator became a creature. The almighty became weak. The upholder of all things became dependent. The richest of all became poor. He surrendered a throne for a manger. And that is the action of divine humility. So God goes beyond thought and attitude. God becomes action. God becomes involved. He he takes to himself willing and intentional condescension. He humbles himself. He became obedient. And if that doesn't speak to you, are you understanding the cost of our redemption by Jesus Christ? That he humbled himself to the death of the cross. So are, are you humbling yourselves? to do the difficult and the problematic. Are you appreciating what God has done? Does the love of Christ constrain you to be more loving yourself in a host of relationships that you are in, to be forgiving and merciful so that Romans 12 that I read to you resonates? I've got to live like that. That's not there for me to admire, but for me to do. I'm telling you that the divine humility sacrificed all display of his divine glory. He retained it, but he hid that glory for the sake of us sinners. And that's an action of infinite grace. Jesus was born with cattle in, in the next booth, in a stable. And and we hesitate about losing sleep or losing sweat for Christ. He allowed himself to be whipped 
and hit in the face and nailed to a cross and mocked. He became obedient to that. And yet we refuse to be put out for the church. How are we measuring up? How am I measuring up in, in, in terms of my love for my neighbor? Is it 10%? Is it 25%? Is it 50%? How, in, in the grades, how warm, how strong, how consistent is my love for my neighbor? The standard is, you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, I enjoy sermons on humility, right. But am I being humble? Is, is my life a humble walk with God to heaven? I may share a meal um, with a young family. They ask me to come. They've got two or three children. They've just had now, uh, that earlier that year, they've had a, a little baby boy. He's eight months old. And he's sitting in his high chair with us around the table. The father doesn't turn to me and says, Please, um, do you mind awfully if I give some food to my little boy? And pouring out her apologies, he spoons the baby's food into his mouth. He doesn't need to apologize for that, does he? And Paul is not apologizing to us here for using vivid terminology to explain how God works in our lives. But he was conscious that there are people, and they are in every congregation and in every age, who are pernickety about Christian doctrines, and they want to hear uh, their voices as uh, when Paul says that we are slaves of righteousness and they want to say, yes, but we're not exactly, I mean, we're not exactly slaves of, uh, of God, are we? Aren't we his friends and his sons? Oh, come on now. Come on. Um, here's a number one tennis uh, champion in, in the world. And he's got a 12-year-old son, and he wants him to play tennis too. And so he takes him out. He doesn't thunder 120 mile an hour serves over the net to his boy to get him interested in tennis. He doesn't destroy him. He top, tops the ball over, and he, he encourages him. Every good thing that he does, he says, yes, do it like this, and so on. He nurses his son along, and so here is the apostle, and He's using terminology that is designed for illiterates in Rome 2,000 years ago. And you were, you were in a university town. And you're middle class people and you've all had an education until you're 16. And you've got, many of you have got the spirit of truth in you. And you're saying, Lord, help me to understand Romans then. Help me to understand Ephesians. Help me to understand John 17. Help me, Lord. There are always new disciples in our services. There are always Christians who are failing to do the basics of Christianity in every one of our services. So, uh, 
part of every sermon must be a dogged repetition of basics. Let me tell you who Jesus was. Let me tell you what he did and why he died on the cross. And that is what characterizes Romans chapter 6. It contains truths that are, you remember, are being repeated and repeated. Because Paul wants them to really grasp these things. Now you remember the basics. First commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. First commandment. Second commandment is like unto it. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. Second in importance of the things I will need to do when I'm mixing with students, children in school, when I'm mixing with uh, people in work, when I'm mixing with my family, some of them, their minds are still not captive to Jesus Christ. And I'm never to stray from those two basic principles. I love God with all my heart. Non-negotiable. I love my neighbor as myself. Non-negotiable. And to keep going back to those fundamental commandments. And if I do that, then other questions that I'll be raised of how I should live will be answered. If I remember, my first responsibility, love God. Next responsibility, love my neighbor as myself. And so Paul spoke simply to these people in the congregation in Rome in human terms because he loved them. He loved them as he loved himself. I dare not assume that all of you, well, you know, that was um, baby school. That was the infant school. That's school Weithrin, that was for, for you. And, and you've all transcended then uh, the basic requirements of loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself that you've gone through infant school. Have you? When you're stuck in traffic for an hour and there's no movement backwards or forwards. Are you loving your neighbor as yourself then? When someone in church does something that hurts you personally, you love him as you love yourself. When your husband ignores you, when your wife forgets something. I know there's greed and there's lust and there's covetousness and uh, there's anger and so on. And those things need to be addressed. But most of all, what needs to be addressed? Simple, basic things like, Loving God with all my heart. Loving my neighbor, whoever God puts me in contact with. The person in the next desk to myself. The girls on the bus. On the way to school. The person who lives next door to me. To love him. Love her as myself. A dogged repetition of basic things. Never give up. How can I help you if you're a scientist or if you're a lawyer? Um, if you're a politician? How can I most help you by uh, bringing you back here week after week after week to the basics of the Christian life, what God requires of us? Paul once said this, I die daily. Now, 
that's not literal. He wasn't uh, expiring and needed uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation every day. It was a spiritual position that he adopted that we've got to adopt. We've got to die every day to self and selfishness and ego and thoughtlessness and doing things my way. We have to die to self. There's a dogged repetition of Christian fundamentals like that. The challenge that faces every Christian then is to keep the greatest commandments. Loving God with all our heart, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And it's not something you assume. You don't say, oh, well, he told us about that again tonight. I got that sorted out. You haven't got it sorted out. We must determine tonight now. I'm going to love God more. I'm going to love my neighbor more than I love my neighbor so far in my Christian life. And I have to keep you as a congregation and keep myself focused on these things. Not majoring in the minors, but putting first things first. And then other things will will fall into place. That does not mean the preaching is going to be cozy. That does not mean that uh, coming here you can guarantee to go away with a warm glow. That's not the purpose of us meeting here. But the Christian life will cease to be a life of struggles and it will be a bed of roses. But it does mean that self in us, our greatest enemy, is going to be dealt another blow. We stick the sword of the Spirit into self and, and, and kill him. And the love of God will be nurtured and nourished in our lives. And uh, it will be central. And more blessings will come. So I got all that then from seeing how Paul thought about how he was to communicate with all the people that he was to love as himself and that he spoke in human terms. That's the first point. My second point is Paul reminds us of what we were as unbelievers. He goes on, you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Verse 19. Two things there. You once offered the parts of your body in slavery to impurity. Many of us here did that. Some of you, before you came to Christ, you used your body for impurity. You used to take parts of your body and uh, you abused them to serve an impure lifestyle. But now that you've come to Christ, you can see that. You say, ah, dear, deliver me, Lord, from that. And when you fall, you say, Lord, deliver me from that. Keep me from impurity. But others of you are still, you you haven't got to that prayer yet. And you can't stop. You are slaves to impurity. You're making a bad choice concerning the members of your body, your ears. Are, Are you going to use them for God or for sin? Your eyes, are they going to be used this week? Your eyes, what you look at, what you survey, are they going to be used for God 
or for sin? Your lips? Are you going to speak up for the Lord? Or are they, are they going to be servants of the devil this week? Your hands? Are you, they going to be instruments for God? Or are you going to use them for sin? Your feet? Will they take you along paths of righteousness or paths of violence? Will they take you to places of compromise and darkness? And the more private and inward and personal parts of your body, are you going to use all of them for God? Or are they going to be used for sin? What I'm talking about is the great doctrine of human responsibility. It's the basic attitude to the Christian life. In other words... I have a moment-by-moment choice to make of what I'm going to do with my life. What am I going to do with my hands? Are I going to type out on my keyboard the dress of a disgusting website and look and ogle and be worked up over it? Will I take a revealing photograph of myself and send it to my boyfriend? What will I do with my nose? Will I snort cocaine? What will I do with my lips and tongue and larynx and my eyes and ears? We have this choice and all the world is mad about sin. All the world is in slavery to sin. Aberystwyth is a town of slaves. And so there's a choice that you, you're going to make every day. 8,000 students slaves to sin. Some years ago, Bob Dylan was influenced by the vineyard movement and for a while then he professed faith in Jesus Christ. It was quite extraordinary. And he wrote a song that's quite popular in evangelical circles. It was called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And that's what Romans 6 is telling us. Mother, you gotta serve somebody this week. Father, you gotta serve somebody. Student, you gotta serve somebody this week. Doctor, electrician, pharmacist, farmer. Salesman, writer, scientist, author, businesswoman, secretary. You've got to serve somebody this week. No matter who you are or where you are or what you do, you've got to serve somebody. You've got to. No escape from that. Who are you going to serve? So that's the first thing he says. Uh, you once offered. That's how you were. You offered the parts of your body. In slavery to impurity. That's the indictment that God brings to Aberystwyth. And then, secondly, he says that they gave themselves to ever-increasing wickedness. It's an unusual phrase. You know what it means. You tell a lie, but then you, you can't stop with one lie. You, you need to tell another lie to cover that lie. And then you tell another one to cover up the third lie, and they're ever-increasing falsehoods. One sin leads to another. Envy leads to aching jealousy and frustration and bitterness and self-pity. Lust leads to pornography and to adultery. Bitterness leads to angry words and then to violence. Sin is like that. Sin is not just an occasional fall, but it's ever-increasing wickedness. A man told a lie at work. He said, I got into trouble, and then I told a lie to cover up what I'd done. Then I found I needed to tell another lie to cover up the first lie. Then I had to tell a third lie to cover up the first two lies I told. Then I had to tell another one to cover up then 
the, that lie, a fifth lie. I kept on until I sat down a few days later and I, I just went through the repetition of lies. And I discovered I had told 42 lies because I told the first lie. Ever-increasing wickedness. Once upon a time, there was a man called David. And instead of being with his men at war, he looked at a woman named Bathsheba. First he lusted, then he committed adultery, then he lied to cover that up, then he committed murder to cover up everything else. Lust, adultery, falsehood, murder. When are we going to wise up about the beauty of the life of holiness? When are we ever going to get smart about sin? Sometimes we're so stupid we go back to the website even when we know it's going to hurt us. We go back to the bottle even though we know drinking that is going to kill us. We go back to something even though we know it's not going to do us any good at all. We know it's going to hurt us, but we do it anyway. When are we going to get smart about sin? Well, when the Holy Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, comes to us when the Word of God really touches us and changes us, then we get smart about sin. Otherwise, it leads to ever-increasing wickedness. Let me tell you then about um, George Orwell, in 1948, he wrote 1984, and he changed the numbers around um, because 84 seemed a long way away from 1948. It's a bit old-fashioned now, but it was a vision of the future. And in that book, he described the future with CCTV cameras everywhere. Surveillance cameras, and they could see you in a lift. They could see you in, in your room. They were everywhere. And so people were living under the oppressive observation of Big Brother. And they could control and warn us about every aspect of our behavior. No privacy. And initially he said that was the future. The future was going to be um, an issue of civil liberty. But before Orwell had written that wonderful book, there was a man called Aldous Huxley. And he wrote a book about the future, and he called that book Brave New World. And in that book, he said the problem for the future was not going to be uh, an impressive, tyrannical, totalitarian state. But the problem was, was going to be that we would become slaves to our own desires. That's what the future had for us, he said. And then there was an American then, more recently, well, you know, 40 years ago, um, Neil Postman, and he wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he says in his introduction, we were keeping our eyes on the year 1984. And then 1984 dawned, and we went through the year, and there was no increase in tyrannical uh, observation of us and warning. The state didn't take a great step forward and hadn't been like this. And so we, 
we breathed a sigh of relief and we said we were so glad that we lived in America and we switched on the country and western station and we watched the TV every night saying there's nothing on telly and we played our pop CDs and we went along to the movies and we amused ourselves we thought that's what we did that's what life was all about life was the evenings and the weekends where we amuse ourselves uh, month after month, year after year, until we died. We ended up in an old people's home, and there they had a 54-inch TV screen, which was permanently on, loudly, all the day. We might not have been living in George Orwell's 1984, thank God for that, but we were living in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. You see, um, they weren't saying... The same thing, those two apocalyptic writers, they weren't saying the same thing. Orwell is warning us about the dangers of external control and oppression, and we've got to watch out for that. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is needed to deceive people about their personal identity and their fulfillment and their maturity. But people made their own oppressions. And people used every advance of technology to dismantle their capacity to think and to be free. All we're saying, people are going to be controlled by the infliction of pain and uh, the terrible punishments that if you were not a, a conformist would come upon you. That's 1984. But Huxley feared that what we loved, what we lived for, would ruin us. Huxley got it right, didn't he? Here's our little town, a little town by the sea, and it's just gripped by pleasure loving, isn't it? We're offering the parts of our body to be slaves of impurity and ever-increasing wickedness. That's, that's Aberystwyth with today. Captives of our desires. We're greedy. We're vainly ambitious. We ache for new experiences, new highs. And we're insecure because we find excitement and satisfaction. They are things we can't hold on to. We, we, we have it and it goes it's like a piece of soap and it's gone. And we're singing, I can't get no satisfaction. And I try and I try and I try and I try, but I get no satisfaction. The pleasures mock us. The cisterns are full of brackish water and we thought they would all refresh us. And they don't. Ever increasing wickedness. And then lastly, Paul tells us of the great change that God works in our lives. And again, he says something quite um, amazing. He says, you were enslaved to that kind of destructive life. Now I'm going to tell you the way of true freedom. I'm going to define for you where blessedness, where real blessedness is. Are you ready for it? Offer the members of your body in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. In other words, actively pursue slavery. You want uh, to be really happy? 
Now, everybody in this congregation tonight wants to be really happy. That's their ambition for their future. If they were honest, they would say that. Yes, they do. Well, this is how you get it, Paul says. You pursue slavery. You go for it. You present yourself as a slave to this most wonderful master. It's such a privilege to serve him and to do his will and have him to help you to do his will day by day. Your master is righteousness, which leads to holiness. It's unbelievable. And you would think then Paul would contrast the slavery of these people who are going on to ever-increasing ever increasing wickedness. You would think he's contrast that life. And says, let me tell you about liberty. But he hasn't. He says, let me tell you about the life of slavery. That you have to live. If you want to be happy. If you want to find fulfillment and, and maturity. If you want to be free... Then you offer your, the members of your body in slavery to righteousness that leads to holiness. It's what you pursue. You say, this one thing I do. That brings blessedness. That brings contentment. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. Those things come into your life when you have a single eye and, and you live for this. That the members of your body are presented to God then, day by day. That's what you do. I've often told you about John Stott in that biography. He says when he gets up in the morning, he sits on the end, at the edge of his bed, and then he gives his hands to God, and his strength to God, and his heart, and his affections, and his mind, and his thinking, and his legs, and his energy. He hands it over to God to be used for God that day. He presents the members of his body as a servant, as a slave to Almighty God. Every day I'm to do that. I lie at his feet, say. He want, if he wants to put his foot on, on my neck as I lie before him, then that's his right. My gracious Lord, I own thy right to every service I can pay and call it my supreme delight to hear thy dictates and obey. That's what a slave sings. I want my tongue to be used for the Lord. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Ephesians 4.29 I want my eyes to be used for the Lord. I want to make a covenant with my eyes so I won't lust after a woman that I see. I give my brain to God. That's... Every thought is captive to him. I have this trillion connections in this extraordinary brain that I have. And uh, I want every connection, every movement, all the electrical activity. I, I want it to be holy and given to God. I want my ears. I don't want my ears to hear stories of, of triumph over what's good and right and pure. I don't want to hear stories of people being put down. I don't want to hear filthy conversations. There's music and it's primitive. And I don't want to hear that. I present my ears to God and my affections. I want my heart to beat with delight when I hear good news. I want 
there to be things I love and I'm delighted in. My loins, my sexuality, my hormones, my drives, what distinguishes me as a man or as a woman. Um, that my desires for closeness and companionship. I give them to God. He's Lord over that entire area of my life. And I can see people who've made a just such a disaster of personal relationships. Because they never handed over this relationship to the Lord. My belly, my enjoyment of good food, my interest in cooking programs, my admiration for uh, Delia and other famous cooks and their recipe books. and uh, What shops in Aberystwyth sell the best foods and the cheapest foods? What shall I give to a person who's going to come to my house for a meal? Um, recommended diets, what, what do you think about them? And eating disorders, it's a fascinating subject. I hand it all over to God. I give it to the Lord. Day by day, I give it to the Lord. I'm a slave to the Lord. And if I have any athletic skill or sporting skill, I give it to the Lord, the members of my body. My strength is used for, first of all, that I love my neighbor as myself. And I love God with all my heart. And so that's what we do. You know, what's the program then of this church for next week for you all? Well, the program is that you love your neighbor as yourself this week. As God directs you, your housemates and your classmates and the members of your family and your next door neighbors you do it all the time you do it continually think of an athlete now and uh, he or she will eat right and get to bed on time and then there'll be a, a discipline of daily practice there are certain muscle groups that are worked on by thousands of repetitions till they have mass and flexibility and there will be certain moves that will be practiced again and again until they become second nature to you. And each time the athlete trains, he gets a little better. Each time she works out, then some sloppy old habit dies a little and some disciplined new habit gets stronger. In other words, every training session becomes a tiny conversion. But it's only after many seasons of such training that you can perform certain skills just as second nature to you. You do it. You've done it because you've trained yourself to do it in this way. The mini conversions are repeated thousands of times and your life changes. A duffer becomes a disciplined athlete. And the Christian life is like that. That's Ephesians 5. You put off certain things and you put on. And all the time you're putting off lying and falsehood and so on. You're putting on truth. So we're making a commitment then for this week. I shall present every part of my body to the Lord today. And we do it until it becomes our second nature. 
Each time we bend our knees and pray, each time we open our mouths and speak a word of testimony, each time we pick up a towel and the jug of water and the bowl and we kneel down and wash the feet, then old self dies. We die to self daily and we, we live for others. We live for others. We love others as we love ourselves. That's the Christian life. And all those mini conversions, they add up as the years go by. And we more intelligently and sensitively and wisely serve Jesus Christ and serve one another. We've become dedicated servants of the Lord and one another. And a flabby and a clumsy Christian becomes trim and becomes graceful. And God can do that. You should have seen some of the old Christians here when they started or before they became Christians. You wouldn't recognize them. The wonderful things grace does. To take a John Newton or a Saul of Tarsus or a Martin Luther. Oh, how powerfully and sweetly to change them. Lord, bless your word to us tonight and help us then to come under the power of this word and not self-consciously. Perhaps we'll be the last people to be aware that these changes are taking place. But we do change. That grace does prevail. Omnipotence in all its love and pity for us does renew us in our bodies and minds and in our lives day by day. Please don't stop. Never stop, Lord. Have pity on us and lift us up again when we fall. And when we've had big falls, pick us up again, Lord, we pray. And use us to... The glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.